All right, I want to welcome everybody to Grace Community Church. If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Quick thumbs up in the back if you can hear me. No thumbs up in the back. <laughs> if you have your Bibles this morning, please go ahead and turn to Acts, chapter 6. I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church to our continuing study of the book of Acts together. Let's take a second and let's pause and ask God to speak to us today from His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we gather into this place today in the name of Jesus. As your children, Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we come to worship you, Lord. You are the most gracious of kings that ever existed, a king who dies for his enemies, who reconciles those who hate him, and, and adopts us into his own family. And so, Lord, we come today and we worship you, God, for your glorious grace. To you belongs the highest of praise, Lord Jesus. Eternal praise belongs to you. All praise, all dominion, all power. Lord, you are worthy. Lord, and we also gather together to remember you as the most powerful of kings. The Lord of all. The Lord of all creation. And the Lord of all of history. And we say on this day that great are your works, God, that you are in the heavens and you do all that you please and you have reigned and ruled over all of human history to accomplish your purpose. And we desire to lean in today and to study your works, God, to give attention to your glorious works throughout human history. And we ask today that you would pull back that veil and you would cause us to see you rightly. Lord Jesus, as your disciples, we ask you today to teach us how to think. Lord, teach us how to think about your world and about the Christian life and about your church. Cause us to submit to you in every area of our life. Lord, bring us under your reign. Reign over us today, King Jesus. Draw near to us today, Lord, as we give attention to your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to read our text together this morning. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Pause. Okay? Spoiler alert on the front end. Alright? It's been a while since you heard this. These are the most important words that you will hear in the next hour. Okay? Spoiler alert. All right. Everything that you're going to hear after these words is supposed to submit to these words. The words that we're about to read, they're breathed out by the holy God. They are God-breathed words without error. So let's give attention to them this morning as we read God's word together. Thus says the Lord, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word to us as Grace Community Church, a family. This is God's word to us this morning. So I want us to start out by noticing that this text begins and ends with the same thing. Okay? That we are told in verse 1 and we're told in verse 7 that the word of God is increasing. That the number of disciples are increasing. So we're seeing it again in the book of Acts. That the word's going forward. The church is expanding. People are being converted. And, and it's no surprise to us that this is, this is what frames our passage because that's a theme that runs through the entire book of Acts. That the word of God is going forward. That people are hearing the gospel and being converted to Jesus Christ. So we see that again. Jesus promised us, did he not? He said, I will build my church. And what do you know? We're seeing fulfilled these promises on the pages of scripture in the book of Acts. That the word of God is going forward. That the number of disciples is increasing. Even increasing greatly. And I want us to pause here. And I want us to consider a few things before we dive further into this passage. Because there is some dangers in reading the book of Acts. There's, there's, there's several of them. And one of the things that we can fall into as we read and study through the book of Acts is kind of a, an idealistic way of thinking about the local church. And so as we zone in on these moments in church history where God was moving in power in his church, where this church was exploding with real evangelistic growth, we can easily come to some wrong conclusions. And I want to talk about that for just a moment. I'll give you one example. So as we, as we lean in and we see this spirit-empowered growth, that the Spirit of God is resting on this church and He's causing the gospel to be multiplied, one of the things that we can conclude is, man, a church like that is awesome. Man, if we just had a church like that, we wouldn't have any problems. Okay? You ever thought that way? That, you know, man, in the early church, they had it going on. They had the power of God. They had miracles. They had explosive church growth. The Spirit of God was resting upon His people. And they didn't have any problems. They didn't have any shortcomings. 
And what Acts chapter 6, our passage does today, is it confronts that. That would be a wrong conclusion about the early church. They did have shortcomings. Okay? In spite of being empowered and energized by the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And one of the things that that should cause us to be aware of as disciples of Jesus is having an overly critical view towards other local churches. Okay? Let me talk to you about that for just a moment. Other local churches or other Christian movements that what we're confronted with here goes against our tendency. Okay? And we have a tendency as we look into other churches or as we look into other Christian movements and we see things that we disagree with, even strongly disagree with, that that is unbiblical, our tendency is to write the whole thing off as that ain't from God. Okay? That ain't from God. And listen, at times that is right and good. That is right and good, especially when the gospel itself is compromised. Okay? We have no partnership with, other, with churches that preach false gospels. Galatians chapter 1 pronounces a curse from God on anyone who preaches false gospels. But we need to be warned, right? That as we look out and we see things that are wrong in other groups and other churches, that we don't write the whole thing off as the Spirit of God ain't in that. Because we have this corrective word in Acts chapter 6. We have these two realities at the same time. Simultaneously, we see the power of God falling on the church, energizing the mission. And yet in the same group of people, we see the presence of sin. Do you know that that can happen? Do you know that that's the case with this local church? That we're not perfect. That we have shortcomings. In the same group of people, you can see the power of the Spirit of God in the presence of sin. And we certainly see that in these early chapters, the book of Acts and the church in Jerusalem. The power of God is exploding in this church and they're growing like the church has never grown before. Okay? The gospel is exploding and yet at the same time, okay, there's partiality happening in this church that are causing the most needy among them to be neglected. That's sin in the same group. So we have to be careful of that centurious, overly critical, see something wrong and just blast it to the core as soon as you disagree with it. That's wrong. That's wrong. Another example you know, of a wrong conclusion that we could come to, come to as we read the early chapters of Acts, especially this, this explosive growth in the church of Jerusalem, we could come to this conclusion. You know what? You know, there's all kind of stuff happening in the Bible, but really the only thing we need is the gospel. And really, at the end of the day, the only thing we need to be concerned about is evangelism. That's it. Okay? And what we need to be about as a local church is gospel, gospel, gospel. Preach it. Preach it, preach it, preach it to the world, preach it to the lost, preach it to all nations. Gospel going forward, gospel going forward, gospel going forward. And Acts chapter 6 is a corrective to that. Let me explain that for a moment. No doubt that our mission given to us by the king with all authorities to make disciples of all nations. Okay? But what we're confronted with in Acts 6 is there's other stuff we got to do. Okay? There's other things that the church has to do besides evangelism. 
And if we leave these things undone, it actually undermines the mission of Jesus. And so look at Acts chapter 6. There are real needs that must be met in the local church. There's injustices and sin that has to be purged from the local church. we got to be a holy people. It's not... Just, it's not merely preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. It's, be, it's live a holy life. Be a holy people that the Spirit of God dwells in your midst. It's also things like ordering and structuring ourselves rightly. As King Jesus has commanded us, He has commanded us how to gather together, how to be structured as a, as a local church. He's even commanded the form of church government that his, that his church is supposed to implement. And so this is an overly simplistic way of thinking, way of reading the book of Acts. That man, it's just all evangelism and nothing else. And I want us to be warned that if we leave these things undone, it compromises our effectiveness and, and our gospel mission to all nations. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to lean in and we're going to learn what we can about this historical story, this, this historical situation in Acts chapter 6. And we're going to learn everything we can about it and then we're going to zoom out and we're going to ask ourselves, Lord, what does this have to do with me? Lord, how, do, how, do you, how would you have me respond to this story from your word? So that's where we're headed this morning. Zone in and then zone right back out. Okay? And as we start in Acts chapter 6, one of the things I'm going to try to help us with is I, it's going to be really helpful for you to understand this specific situation if you understand some of the background of the New Testament. And this is information that comes to us in other books beside the Bible. Okay? And that means they're not infallible, okay? They're not um, uh, infallibly authoritative in the local church, but they're history, okay? These are historical sources that bear witness of what the culture was like in this time, what Judaism was like in this time, and it can shed tremendous light on our understanding of God's Word. And so, we're going to do a little bit New Testament background as we lean into the story of Acts 6. And the most helpful thing for me to mention and for you to know is that at this particular time in redemptive history, all the historical sources bear witness to us that there are two major strands of Judaism present in the Roman Empire at the time of the New Testament. There's a majority and a minority. And the majority strand of Judaism, during this particular time, they're the Hebrews. They're the Hebrews. The Jewish majority group. And the Jewish minority group, they're known as the Hellenist. That is the Greek word for Greek. Okay? The Greek word for Greek. So you got this group of Jews they're called the Hebrews, majority group. And you have this other group of Jews, and they're called the Hellenists. Okay? And they're the minority group. We're going to talk more about the differences, but the differences start with language. That there was a language barrier between these two groups. The Hebrews spoke Hebrew. Big surprise. 
Okay? An Aramaic, a dialect. So Hebrews speaking Hebrew, and guess, you know, uh, uh, big, big guess of what the Hellenists were speaking. They're speaking Greek. Okay? So you have two different groups of Jews, and they're speaking different languages. But the, but the divisions between these groups go much deeper than that. Okay? The Hebrews in this specific time, these are the more traditional Jews, the more conservative Jews. They, they have a worldview and they live a lifestyle that most closely represents the ancient customs of Israel. And then the Hellenists are the exact opposite. Not only are they speaking Greek, okay, they have been heavily influenced and shaped by Greek culture. They're modernists, syncretists. Okay? They've been affected um, not just by the Greek language, but by the Greek culture. So I want us to think about this, okay? Because this is a phenomenon that happened for many hundreds of years. Beginning with a judgment on Israel in the Old Testament, where God judged that nation, and they went into Babylonian exile, the people of Israel were scattered in clusters all across the world, okay? Large quantities went to pockets of different places. And that started in the Babylonian exile. And then what happened after that? Well, another uh, nation arose and ruled over the Jews after the Babylonians. They were called the Persians. Okay, And then after the Persians, another group arose and ruled over the Jews. And they were called the Greeks. And then after the Greeks, another group arose and ruled over the Jews. And they were called the Romans. Okay? And so for over 500 years, the Jewish people have been subjugated by foreign powers. They do not rule their homeland. Okay? And, and continuously, over the course of those hundreds of years, Jewish people are being dispersed into pockets outside the land of Israel. And historically, this is referred to as the Jewish diaspora. Okay? The Jewish diaspora. Diaspora, the spreading, the scattering of the Jewish peoples outside of the land of Israel. And I want us to think about that. What happened when, when, when they began to scatter, okay? Um, yes, they began to speak. O over the course of a couple of hundred years, they no longer spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. They began to speak the language of the empire, Greek. But it didn't stop there, okay? These Jews were shaped heavily by Greek culture. And Greek culture created a, kind, of a, kind of a pseudo blend between Greek ideas and Hebrew ideas. And these were the Hellenists. Okay? And by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, these Jews who have, who have been tremendously influenced by Greek culture, they have moved into the land of Israel. And you have the majority group. And the minority group coexisting in the same place, in the homeland, in the land of Israel. And guess what? Those cultural differences cause tremendous tension between these two groups. Tremendous tension. Okay? And I want to define that for just a moment. Because this tension is really specific. Okay? And we still, no doubt, we're going to talk about this. We still experience tension today. We still experience this. But I do want to point out, okay, 
that this tension that we're about to give attention to in Acts 6 is not about skin color. Okay? This is not about skin color. These are two groups of Jews. Two groups of Jews. Jews versus Jews. And so this is not a tension about how much melanin someone has in their skin, whether they're lighter or darker than someone else. And that's not the, the root of the tension that we see here in Acts chapter 6. It's not mainly about ethnicity or about uh, what some would refer to as race uh, racism today. That's not the heart of the issue in Acts chapter 6. But there is tension. Okay? There's tension within one ethnicity group. There's tension. Okay? And it's not mainly about the different languages that they speak. You know? It's not mainly, you know, someone getting really fed up at the market that someone else comes in and you speak Greek every time. And you're supposed to be speaking Hebrew and you're speaking Greek every time you come to the market. That's not the main source of the tension. What I want us to see is that the main root of the tension is cultural. Okay? It's cultural. It's not about mainly the color of their skin. It's not about mainly the language that they speak. It's about their culture. It's about their background. It's about their common experiences being opposite from each other. It's about a different way of looking at the world and different worldviews. It's a cultural gap that's causing tension between these Hellenists and these Hebrews. I hope you understand as a follower of Christ that that cultural tension is still here today. Okay? It is alive and well in our generation. Okay? And one thing that you need to know about yourself, every person in here, is naturally by nature, your sinful nature prefers people just like you. I want to say that again. Your sinful nature, you are naturally drawn to people just like you. Okay? And I mean that in many ways. People that look like you. People that talk like you. People that think like you. People that enjoy the things that you like. You need to know that about yourself. That that's who you gravitate towards. Okay? And you need to know that that's sinful. Okay? That's sinful. That's sinful. In the church of Jesus Christ, we have an all-nations mission. Okay? And one of the things specifically that we are commanded to do is to purge all forms of this word from our life. Partiality. Partiality. Let's read this verse together. James chapter 2, verse 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory. How much partiality? None. No partiality. As we believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that, that, uh, that James goes on to tell us that this partiality within the church, these distinctions that we make between different Christians, James chapter 2 calls them evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. 
What would happen if you're in your life, if you declared war on that natural gravitation towards people just like you and you declared war on all forms of partiality in your life and you called them what the word of God calls them evil, evil thoughts. That is evil, Lord, that I would not love equally with no partiality. Every image bearer on this planet created in your image. And do you know how disgusting, once, the, once this veil is pulled back, do you know how disgusting the sin of racism becomes in the church? Do you know that? It's evil. It's evil. It's a form of partiality that, that God hates. It, it, it obliterates everything that the gospel stands for, the all nations gospel. And I want us to be warned about Subtle forms of what's it's nothing but flat out racism still alive in our culture. Just a few years ago, we had this happen. Um, what? 20 miles uh, south of us, Crystal Springs, um, uh, uh, um, a black man wanted to get married to a white girl in a church in Crystal Springs. And the racist congregation said, no, 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 we don't believe in that stuff here. You can do that somewhere else, but you're not doing it at our church. And that dishonor to the name of Jesus made its way to the national news. Do you know that? That's a subtle form of racism. You have any discomfort in your life between ethnicities joining together in holy marriage. One flesh together. It's nothing but flat out racism. Flat out racism. It is to be purged from the church of Jesus Christ. It has no place in the church's midst. No partiality as we hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, this is exactly what was happening in Acts chapter 6. There were certain groups that were being preferred, okay, because they were in the majority culture. They're more like everybody else. And there were other widows that were being overlooked because they're in the minority and they ain't like everybody else. They're not like the majority. So this is partiality. And I want us to understand what Satan's behind the scenes here in the book of Acts. He's trying to destroy the church of Jesus. He does not want the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And so this is one of his strategies. is to introduce a schism into the body of Jesus Christ. This all nations bride, this glorious all nations bride that's going to worship Jesus forever. He's trying to derail it with this schism. Okay? And I want us to think about it really is that serious. That this particular sin undermines not only the gospel, but it undermines the mission of the church. Good luck taking the gospel to all nations on earth if you're a racist. You understand that? It undercuts the gospel mission itself. It is antithetical to everything that Jesus stands for. This is a tremendous temptation for this church and it needs to be purged. It needs to be purged. Godly leaders, godly leaders need to be put in place over this distribution. This church is providing daily help 
to massive amount of widows. And listen, that's a good work. That's good and pleasing in the sight of God. So, so, so let's, not, let's not get this wrong. They're doing good stuff. Okay? In, in fact, in Psalm 68, we're, we're, we read these words about God. That he's a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. They're tracking in the right direction. They're trying to take care of the widows that have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, at the same time, listen. They're doing this every single day, this good work. Charity given in the name of Jesus, and yet every single day this injustice is happening. And there's real neglect and real partiality. And there are, there's a real need for godly leaders to oversee this distribution to drive out that partiality that's trying to undermine the mission of the church. The solution that they come to in Acts 6 was they decided to appoint qualified men to oversee the daily distribution. Now, if you never heard this, just listen close for just a minute. I believe that these men that we see in Acts chapter 6 are the first deacons. Okay? They are the prototype of what's later going to be called in the New Testament the office of deacons. That there are going to be people appointed to, to this office to serve in this specific role of the church. And I'm submitting to us that these are the first deacons. And I want to talk to you about why for just a moment. In 1 Timothy 3, we bump into that very clear expression of appointing deacons in the local church. That's the word diakonos. Okay? It means servant. And we're not, not only that, we're told that these uh, deacons must be qualified. Okay, it's not just put warm bodies in different places, but qualifications must be met in order for people to hold this office, the diakonos, the deacons. Okay, now, as we come to this passage in Acts chapter 6, that same word does not occur, okay, but other words in the same word group are all around. Okay, let me give you an example of this. We are told that these men are now going to oversee the daily distribution. And that literally reads the daily diaconia, the daily service. And what do deacons do? Servants that serve. Okay, so they're going to serve in that specific way, the daily distribution. That's verse one. And then again, in verse two, we see that these men are going to serve tables. Okay, same Greek word. Okay, same same thing happening here that that what, what, what do deacons do Well, they serve? Okay, and these men are going to serve in these specific ways that we see in Acts chapter six. Now, are those words showing up in this passage just a random coincidence or is there something more to it? And I would submit to you this morning, you have, to, you have to examine this for yourself, that this is not a coincidence. And let me tell you why, okay? Let me tell you why. We know that deacons in the New Testament, this is an office, okay? This is a perpetual thing that's supposed to be put in place in every healthy church. We know that from 1 Timothy, the church order letter, that churches that are governed by the Word of God when things are put in place as Jesus would have them, a church has deacons, qualified men serving 
in this office. It's a perpetual role in the church. But something really interesting happens in 1 Timothy 3. You're told to appoint deacons. And you're told of what qualifications that deacons need. But you're not told anything that deacons are supposed to do. Okay? And that's interesting, right? So, so we want qualified men and we want them in this office. And, and now what do they do? Okay? And that leaves us with two options. And your first is this. First option is that in the Word of God, that God has given us an office, a perpetual office in the church, and not revealed to us what those, what that, those men are supposed to be doing. Option number one. By the way, I don't believe that. That seems ridiculously silly to me that he would tell us to appoint deacons, who deacons must be, and not say anything in the New Testament about what they're supposed to be doing. Or, option number two, we have to go to another place in the New Testament to get some light on what deacons are supposed to be doing. And I believe that Acts 6 gives that light. What are deacons supposed to do in the local church? Now, I know that many of us in this room have a variety of experiences when it comes to deacons in the local church. Okay? Some really good, I don't doubt that at all. Unfortunately, others' experiences are really bad. Now, you knew a deacon in a church one time that beat his wife. Or you knew, you know, deacons in the church as um, a popularity contest, a badge of community service, or something to go on a politician's flyer, deacon at so-and-so church. Okay? It's all kind of ideas... Good and bad, good and bad experiences that we bring in to what we understand these men to be and do. And what I want us to do is slide those to the side for just a moment, and I want us to zone in on Act 6. What are they doing here? What are these men doing here? What would Jesus have these men to do? How would these men serve Jesus in this office? And so here's the question I want you to ponder. When the church needed to respond corporately to the needy. I want you to understand that. There's a difference between you as a son taking care of your mother in need. That's an individual responsibility. Okay? And God's Word is really clear about that. But when there's a situation where the church needs to respond corporately to the needy, guess what the answer is? Deacons. This is, this is the God-ordained response to the needy, to these widows, that, that they have real um, urgent needs that must be met. They need godly men to make sure that these needs are met, and the answer to that is deacons. Okay? Now, once that falls into place, this office of deacon gets highly exalted. These are ministers of mercy. Okay? They're not just catch-all, you know, do this, do this, do this. They are the corporate response to the needy. So think about this. Well, who are missionaries in the local church? They're that missionary arm that reaches out from the local church that takes the gospel to the nations. Well, the deacons are the arm of compassion from the local church that reaches out and meets needs in, in its midst. These are, these are god ordained, qualified men, ministers of mercy, meeting urgent needs 
within the body of Christ. This is in a centralized way, in a corporate way. This is what these men are set apart to do. To serve Jesus and stewarding these resources to meet urgent needs. So there's a lot of ideas about what a deacon is and supposed to do. But God's word just casts tremendous light on what these men are supposed to be doing. They are the corporate response to the needy. Okay? The corporate response to the needy. Once this structure was put in place in this church, the Jerusalem church, two things happened. First, you get godly men overseeing this daily distribution. It's bye-bye partiality. Okay? You got men filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom and filled with faith. And they feel a tremendous stewardship before God that they want to serve well in this office that they're being appointed to. Sayonara partiality. It's purged. Okay? And what does that create? It creates a structure in verse 7 that we, that we read that the gospel continues going forward. Gospel continues going forward. These men step into this administrative role, allows the leaders of this church to continue preaching God's word publicly. And what happens? A rightly ordered church has structure in place that causes the gospel to continue to spread, to continue to increase. So as we see that this, this structure laid out in Acts 6, we do need to be aware okay, that we have a tendency in our culture to downplay church government. Okay? Um, I mean, we hear those words and a lot of our initial response is, man, I'd rather take a nap um, than hear you know, an hour teaching on church government. Okay? But when we think about what does this passage mean for you, that's really the first thing that we're hit with is man. We need to obey Jesus and what King Jesus has said about rightly structuring his church. And when we begin to move in that direction, we're in this theme of church government. I do think that, uh, you know, what sticks out to me over the years, just an example of how this is downplayed, uh, the importance of being rightly structured as a local church. I've had conversations over the years. I was going to say many, but they're really, you know, not many. I've had conversations over the years with different people who desire to be missionaries. Okay? And something in those conversations was communicated along the way of, I want to go to China. Or I want to go labor for Jesus in Bangladesh. Or I want to go to India. Or I want to go to Pakistan. Or I want to go preach the gospel in France. Or I want to go preach the gospel in Tunisia. Okay. Is that a good thing? Absolutely, that's a good thing. Jesus has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. But way too many times, those conversations have gone like this. Man, that's fantastic that you want to take the gospel to Bangladesh. What are you going to do when you get there? So you're there, filled with zeal in the, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And you arrive, now what? And the answer almost always is, well, of course, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach Christ Jesus. And I honestly and sincerely amen that. Amen 
Preach the gospel. We don't need missionaries anywhere on planet earth that are not preaching Jesus Christ. This is what they're sent for. So preach the gospel. Yes and amen. And then the next question is, and then what? And then what? So many missions start and stop right there. And there's not adequate answers to that question, then what? So think about that. You're in Bangladesh and you, and you land on the ground and you preach the gospel and the power of the Spirit. And let's just say that the Spirit of God rests on your words and 30 people believe the gospel. Praise to Christ. Believers in Bangladesh. Now what? What do you do? And your answer automatically takes you to your doctrine of the church. To what you understand a church to be. And you're automatically now having to make decisions about what a church is and how a church should function and how a church should meet and how a church should be governed and how a church should do membership and how a church should do discipline. And way too many times those things are too fuzzy. They're too fuzzy because church government is downplayed. Okay, It's downplayed. And the real issue, why is this important? You know, uh, man, I just need the gospel. I'm going to preach it. Um, you know, and I'll just figure it out when I get there. You know, why is that idea inadequate? And the thing that I really want you to consider is what's at stake in church government is not just this model versus this model. Okay. What's at stake in church government is a church being ran by the wisdom of men. And a church being ran according to the word of God. So I want you to understand that. The authority of King Jesus is at stake in how a church governs itself. And how a church organizes. And how a church meets. So listen. In case you didn't know this. King Jesus has a church. And he did not leave that government of his church up for you to just figure it out and do the best that you know how to do. He revealed what pleases him in his word. And we must submit to the wisdom of King Jesus, his authority, his authority. For example, the hot button issue in church government. Jesus has ordained that his church be led by a plurality. Let me say that again. Plurality of qualified men called elders. That is not a New Testament suggestion. That is a New Testament command. Appoint elders in every church. This is the wisdom of Jesus. This is how the king runs his church. Plurality of qualified leaders. New Testament knows nothing of one pastor over a local church. New Testament doesn't even know anything of one pastor placed above other pastors in the local church, commonly referred to in our church culture as a senior pastor, not in the Word of God. And I would submit to you that both of those are examples of worldly wisdom creeping into the church of Jesus. And that's, that's what's at stake. Submitting to the authority of of Christ, submitting to the authority of Christ. God designed for church government. So we don't have apostles walking around anymore. But guess who takes over for them to minister the Word of God? 
This is really clear in the New Testament. That that responsibility is given to the elders of the local church. Also known as overseers. Also known as pastors. Same office. God has ordained that a plurality of men would be set apart to labor in his word. To labor in the scriptures. To be devoted to the word of God. In a special way. In a unique way. In a way that other Christians are not. Okay, They're set apart for the ministry of the word. These men, they stand in a long line of faithful men, but they go all the way back to Ezra in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful description of what an elder is called to do. In Ezra 7.10, many of you know this verse, says this, For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's what the man did. That's what elders are supposed to do. They eat, sleep, and breathe the ministry of the Word of God. They are set apart in a, in a unique way to distribute the Word of God, the knowledge of God, to give attention to the Scriptures in all of life. Just like Ezra. The word that Paul uses to describe their relationship to Scripture and preaching is devotion. Okay? Devotion. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he says this, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. God's Word tells us this is a noble thing for you to desire to do. This is a noble thing for you to desire to do. This is a noble way to spend your life on planet earth serving King Jesus is set apart for the Word of God. Devoting yourself to, to the reading, teaching, and exhortation of the Word of God. Set apart in a unique way to serve the church of Jesus Christ. It's a noble task. A noble task. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. One of the things that we can learn in this area of church leadership, so the elders take over for the apostles in the ministry of the word. And we have a warning as a local church about not allowing the elders of the church to be unnecessarily burdened with administration. And we see that there. Okay, This is not a complaint in any way. Not a complaint in any way. This is something that we have to be aware of. Okay? That this can creep into local churches. And in fact, this has happened many times over in our state, okay? In our, in our region, in our area, that local churches have died because pastors stopped being preachers and they started being event planners and therapy counselors and program drivers and they stopped preaching the Word of God. They stopped standing in the place of the prophets of old and proclaiming God's Word. To God's people, we have to be warned by that. That anything at Grace Community Church that would challenge the centrality of the Word of God being preached is a threat to the health of our church. It's a threat to the power of our church. And this is how churches think and operate that are rightly governed. Okay? Some are set apart in a unique way for the ministry of the Word of God. And then others are ordained to this ministry of service. The way it's described in Acts 6 is the service of tables. These are the deacons. Grace Community Church, three men have been set apart 
to serve in this role in our midst. Hunter Ainsworth, Hunter Hansen, and Aaron Poole. And these brothers are not just servants. They are spirit-filled servants. They are qualified men of God. They are qualified brothers in Christ. They are godly men. And they must be godly men. Because of the task and the duties that they've been given to discharge for Jesus Christ. I want you to think about how important character is in the office of deacon. Think about that. So, so many times the pivot is toward the pragmatic. Uh, something needs to be done in the local church. And this guy's good at business. This guy's good at legal stuff. This guy's good at organizing teams. This guy's good at building stuff. This guy's good at sound. Guess where that happens on the pages of the New Testament? Zero. Come to the qualifications of deacons. Character. Start to finish. Get, give, give us men of God to serve in this office of Deacons. And so I want us to consider this. How important is character? In Acts 6, we are told that these men serve tables. And this word is actually a little bit ambiguous. Probably for years I read that text and I'm thinking, you know, seven men are um, grabbing huge handfuls, hundreds of loaves of bread or, or pitos or, or whatever it is. And they're loading them. Um, just bucketfuls at a time to feed hundreds of widows and slam them down on the table and then distribute them. But the same Greek word for table is the same word for table in John chapter 2 where Jesus enters into the temple and he overturns the money changers' table. This could be, an act, this could, this could be um, a, a word that describes an ancient bank okay, where money was distributed. And honestly, I think the passage uh, has more to say about that way of reading Acts chapter 6. They're feeding hundreds of widows. So you decide, are they carrying hundreds of loaves of bread and some ham for some sandwiches? Or more likely, are they carrying some coins and some money to distribute to these women in need so that they can, they can go get some food every day? And I think... Uh, that the evidence is toward the latter. And then how important does character come in? In Acts chapter 6, how important is it that we have men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, faithfulness to Jesus Christ? How important is that if they are handling boatloads of money given to the church of Jesus Christ? How important is it then? The, the temptations to corruption are tremendous. So we need men of God. We need qualified men of God. Character is extremely important. And this is why God honors deacons. And so should we at Grace Community Church. We should honor these men for the service that they render to our church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. And also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I want us to switch gears a little bit. And I want us to walk into our final implication of how we're supposed to be responding to this story. And many times, surely you feel that, right? That you read stories of Scripture... 
And your question before the Lord is, Lord, what does this mean to me? God, I believe that your word is breathed out by you and profitable, but I'm not real sure how I'm to respond. And one of the things that we're reminded of at the close of this passage is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel. And I think that that's a really good order for us at Grace Community Church. That we, we deem church government to be really important at this church. Have from the very beginning. We deem it to be important. We want to organize ourselves according to God's word. We want to get up under the wisdom of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. But you know, this can backfire. And if we're not careful, we can walk around in pride and self-righteousness, kind of stroking our chest a little bit of, yeah, we're that church government church. We do plurality of leaders. We got this thing figured out. We got this thing ordered rightly. We're Grace Community Church. And I want to remind us that our confidence can never land on our structure. Okay? It is a hollow Empty thing without the power and the spirit of God. Our confidence is not in our church government. It's not in us being rightly ordered. Our confidence is in the gospel. And we get a tremendous display and a reminder of the power of the gospel that was unleashed in Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Alright, you, you might have just missed a bomb that went off at the end of verse 7. A great many priests became obedient to the faith. So what we're going to do is we're going to meditate for just a moment. We're going to meditate for just a moment. We're going to ask the Spirit of God to teach us, Lord, what would cause, what in the world would cause a Jewish priest to become obedient to the faith in Jesus Christ? What in the world would cause this? Okay? And as we consider that before the Lord, I want us to remember just a little bit about who these men were. The Jewish priest. Their entire life revolved around the temple of God in Jerusalem. Their entire life. Do you understand that? Everything about their identity, everything about their, their service, their life revolved around the temple of God in Jerusalem. And in fact, they could trace their ancestry all the way back to Aaron and even Levi. And for generations, this is what the priests have been about. Serving God in His temple. Performing the duties that God has given them to discharge in the temple. Their whole life revolved around the temple system and the priesthood. Their livelihood came from the temple system and the priesthood. They received no inheritance in Israel, for the Lord was their inheritance. And they lived, they lived their life off this temple system. So not only is it their identity, it's how they're providing for their families. 
It is everything about their life is wrapped up in the Jerusalem temple. And our text just said that they walked away from it all. And the way that verb tense is worded in verse 7 is that it kept happening over and over and over. Priests were becoming obedient to the faith. They were bowing the knee in submission to Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world would cause somebody to walk away from everything they ever knew and obey and submit to Jesus Christ? What's the answer to that? And we know as followers of Christ all across this room, we know that they walked away from everything that they ever knew because they found something better in Jesus Christ. They didn't make a sacrifice. They received a gift from heaven. They, they, their eyes were open to the glory of Christ. And I want you to imagine how beautiful that, that would have been for a priest. That in a moment of time, the Lord Jesus delivered them from the land of shadow and brought them into the land of substance. And in a moment of time, their eyes were open and they realized this is he is everything that I've been pointing to my entire life. I see his glory. And they heard the glory of Christ as they heard the gospel of Jesus and they walked away from it all. And I want, us to rem I want to remind us this morning, the gospel, it really is that powerful because it really is that good. It's that powerful because it really is that glorious. It holds Jesus out to us as the glorious one, the treasure to be had. So I want us to consider that this morning. History tells us that these men spent two weeks a year traveling to Jerusalem to serve and oversee the sacrifices daily in the temple. So just pick one of them. Give them a name for just a moment and meditate. Year after year, they would make this journey. And how many times have they seen it over and over and over again? A bull laid on the altar. A goat laid on the altar. A lamb laid on the altar. Hundreds of times over, they've seen sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And, that, and, and yet, year after year, every time they put an animal on the altar, every time they saw the blood run down the altar, every single time they were reminded, it cannot cleanse me from my sin. It cannot wash me clean from my guilty conscience. And so they go serve God in the land of shadows. But there's something missing. That there's something that had to be better. Something that would wash away the guilt of sin from the human conscience. And then all of a sudden, they travel to Jerusalem and they see these half-crazy apostles preaching Jesus in the temple and they hear the message of the glorious one. And all of a sudden, the men who have laid lamb after lamb on the altar see the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And once they see Jesus... No way they're going back to the shadow. He is better. He is the glorious one. And Jesus is still the same today. He's still better. He's still the glorious one. He's still the highest of treasures. Our Christ is glorious. I want you to be reminded of that today. 
The gospel is still and forever will be the best news that you could ever hear. That the highest of kings has died for your sins and offered you forgiveness of sins for faith in His name. Glorious. You know it's true in God's Word that King Jesus, He did say, deny yourself. He did say that. There are costs to be counted when we follow Jesus Christ. And He also said, take up your cross. Yes, Jesus said that. He said, deny yourself. He said, take up your cross. This is not patty cake following Jesus Christ. You carry an instrument of death on your back. But praise God, that's not all He said. Be reminded of that today. He did not just say, deny yourself and take up your cross. Brothers and sisters, He said, follow me. We get Him. We get Jesus. Do you understand how He finishes that sentence? When He says, follow me, everything else becomes background noise. You mean I can follow you, the glorious one? You mean I can have you, Lord Jesus? I've been living in the land of shadows and you are the point of all of history. You mean I can follow you? Of course, that's the easiest decision I've ever made to deny myself and take up my cross because I can have Jesus. Because I can have Jesus. That power of the gospel is still being unleashed all over planet earth. And I'll remind you here today that His call to you is still the same that it's always been. To take up your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow Him. Jesus says to you today, come to Me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Priests labored for the Lord their whole life. And it wasn't until that moment of the glorious gospel that they rested in Jesus Christ. That's still the call to leave all and follow Him and find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask today in response to Your Word, God, we ask that You would show us Your glory. That's our prayer. As we close this time and as we leave this place, pull back the veil, Lord Jesus, and cause us to see You as You truly are, the glorious One. The treasure in the field that's worth selling everything just to have You. You are glorious, Lord. And You are powerful. And King Jesus, we ask You to exercise that power on human hearts even now. God, I pray that You would bring conviction all across this room to pitiful things that we would run to that would keep us from following You. In Your name we pray. Amen.